are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Here I am, not in my home, not in my pickup truck. I'm in Israel. So it's 10 o'clock at night here. We've had a long day of touring going to Caesarea on the Sea, going to Mount Carmel, going to Megiddo, going to Nazareth Village, going to Nazareth Precipice. It's been a wonderful, wonderful day of a first day of an Israel tour. Uh, But uh, it's kind of the end of the day. I'm a little bit tired, but I'm happy, even excited, to spend an hour with you all uh, or so. If it lasts an hour, it lasts an hour. If we end a little early, that's okay with me. But it's wonderful to be here for this day to share with you all the way from Israel to come and spend this question and answer time. Now, uh, I kind of think of our European listeners or European viewers, uh, how for once I'm an hour ahead of you instead of being eight or nine hours behind you. And I'm really glad that we could come together for this time. Uh, I'm glad for the modern technology that enables me, who am in a hotel room, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And tomorrow we're gonna visit sites like Capernaum and the Mount of Beatitudes and go out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee and visit Magdala. We're gonna visit these various sites tomorrow. Uh, And yet I can come to you here on a Thursday. For me, it's nighttime. For whatever part of the world you're in, it's whatever time you're in. Or if you're watching this later, it's whatever time is convenient for you. I love coming to Israel. Um, People ask me how many times I've been. I don't know exactly how many tours I've done. I've come here several tours that I've been a part of that I haven't led. And I suppose I've maybe led five or six tours. I'm really not sure. Plus, my wife and I, we've been here on conferences, just on holidays. I really enjoy coming to Israel. It's wonderful to see the lands of the Bible. And might I add as well, It's wonderful to go to countries like Jordan. It's wonderful to go to countries like Turkey. It's wonderful to go to countries like Greece and Italy, other places where the Bible story, especially in the New Testament, takes place. So I just love being in these places where uh, the biblical story comes alive, so to speak. So I'm going to begin with a lead question, and the lead question is pretty apropos. It's something that has just come in from... uh, Susan via Facebook. Apparently this question just came in to us today, but it really fits for where I am right now, so I thought I should answer it. Um, The question from Susan is this. I have a question. What do you think of believers who keep the Jewish Sabbath and holy days? Now, again, that's a great question. What about believers, and by that she means Christian believers, believers in Jesus as the Messiah? What do I think of them who want to keep the Jewish Sabbath and Jewish holy days? Well, this is my basic approach to this. We have freedom in Jesus Christ. That's really the message that we have. That's what the New Testament tells us. So we have the freedom to keep the Jewish Sabbath and holy days if we want to. We also have the freedom to not keep the Jewish Sabbath or the Jewish holy days if we don't want to keep them. 
Here's the important thing. We shouldn't realize that we're any more right with God because we keep the Jewish Sabbath or holy days or because we do not keep the Jewish Sabbath and holy days. None of those, either the keeping of them or the not keeping of them, is the ground of our righteousness before God. The ground of our righteousness is the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So, we genuinely have this freedom. Now, I do want to stress that these Sabbaths and holy days, that is the Jewish Sabbath and the Jewish holy days, are not obligated for Christians to keep, as they were, in fact, obligated for the Jewish people under the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, whichever way you want to title that particular covenant. Those things were obligated upon the Jewish people under that Mosaic Covenant. But you see, we as believers are not obligated to keep them. Now, that idea is found in how Jesus interacted with the law in the days of his earthly ministry. Though Jesus did perfectly fulfill the law, he kept it in every regard. Jesus was very zealous to push back against traditions that tried to replace the law, such as many of the Sabbath-keeping traditions. The idea is also found in Hebrews and the supremacy of Jesus and the New Covenant. But the idea is also found in several of the letters and writings of the Apostle Paul. For example, in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul said, For Christ is the end of the law for, uh, for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law in its laws, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Jesus is the end of the law, the fulfillment of the law. Uh, he is the ground of our righteousness. And then I also appreciate what Paul wrote in second, excuse me, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where Paul wrote this. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, Paul says very plainly, don't let anyone judge you. And by the way, I would say when he says, let no one judge you regarding food or drink or a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, he doesn't mean let no one judge you if you want to keep it or if you don't want to keep it. Again, back to that principle, we have freedom in Jesus Christ. So we're free to observe those Jewish Sabbaths and holy days, or we're free not to observe them, really according to how the Holy Spirit would lead us and our own personal preference. So I think it's important because here in Israel, there are a fair amount of uh, Christians who very much want to have a Jewish flavored or influenced Christian life. They want to observe the Jewish Sabbath. They want to remark and uh, fulfill the Jewish holy days. Now, 
always pointing, hopefully, to Jesus and the fulfillment. They, they want to keep a lot of Jewish traditions and customs. Again, hopefully emphasizing how those things point to Jesus. And, and again, that's fine. They have perfect liberty in Jesus Christ to do so. They just should not think themselves as more righteous or more superior than a believer who chooses not to keep those things. So Susan, what do I think of those? Now, as long as a fellow Christian does not see those things as a ground of righteousness, but merely as an exercise as the liberty of Jesus Christ, then I applaud them. I mean, that's what Susan's question was really all about. What do I think of believers who keep the Jewish Sabbath and holy days? Hey, as long as they simply see it as an exercise of the liberty that they have in Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. Enjoy it, brother. Enjoy it, sister. Um, Look for how these things point to Jesus and his completed work. However, I would have an issue if they started to feel that those were commands that they could or should place upon anybody else. So Susan, that's the answer to your question. I know that you wrote in the question via Facebook, but I hope that somehow it gets back to you on our YouTube channel. And uh, that's simply how I would express the answer. We have liberty, liberty to keep these things or to not keep them. And the only problem comes when we think that either are keeping them or we think that are not keeping them is the grounds of our righteousness or our acceptance before God. No, our grounds of righteousness and acceptance is the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. All right, that's it for the lead question. I'm going to look over now to some of the questions coming in from you, our audience, writing in on our um, YouTube channel. Now, of course, I always do want to take the opportunity to welcome our TWR360 audience. Uh, we put out this um, broadcast, this live Q&A, in connection with cooperation with TWR360. It's, it's also put out through their website, and we just want to welcome everybody from our TWR360 audience who might be watching uh, and spending this time with you. TWR 360 is a great ministry from that wonderful, long-standing ministry, Trans World Radio. So uh, TWR 360 is their online presence. Again, just welcome, and uh, especially welcome to our international audience. Uh, Again, usually I'm doing this from my home on the coast of California, but now I'm in Israel, and uh, next week I'll probably be in Israel as well, God willing, and if we live, I'll be able to do it then. And uh, wherever God gives me the opportunity to travel, as much as I can, I'd like to do these live Q&As. Try not to speak too loud, letting this microphone do the work for me, because I am in a hotel room. There's people on either side of us. I haven't heard any banging against the wall, so I think we're okay. Uh, Let me go on to our first question coming in from you on the live chat. Uh, Andrea asks, is there anything in Genesis that specifically or explicitly states that Adam and Eve had eaten any kind of food from any other source before they got tempted and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Andrea, uh, the answer to that question, again, I'm just running through my Bible knowledge in my mind, which isn't infallible, of course, but I'm fairly confident in my knowledge of these things. 
there is no mention of Adam and Eve eating any specific thing before they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this, of course, is one of the interesting questions for us to consider about the book of Genesis. How long did Adam and Eve live in the Garden of Eden before they fell? When we read it in the Genesis account, it kind of seems that it happens all of a sudden. But we really don't know that. We're just sort of operating by how that kind of feels to us as we read the text. There's no mention of any kind of time span. So it is possible that Adam and Eve lived for some days, some weeks, some months. I suppose you could even speculate years uh, before they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. Now, of course, if it were to be more than a day, they would have had to eat from something else, eat from some other source of food and nourishment in the Garden of Eden. So we're not told anything specific of them eating before they ate of the tree, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. Um, but this is just one of the things that the text itself just doesn't speak from. Um, hello to my dear mother-in-law, Gunnel, watching from Sweden. When I do these live Q&As from my phone, because that's how I'm doing it right now, I've got my phone up on the little stand, I see the chat come up here. Uh, and I don't catch all the chat because sometimes if it's wordy or lengthy, I'm not going to take the time. But when I see a little uh, hello and greeting from my mother-in-law in Sweden, I want to say, hello, Gunnel. I'm glad you and Nils are able to watch this evening. And we're an hour ahead of you now, so that's one thing. Okay, so Andrea, I hope that answers your question. There is no indication in the Bible of them eating anything in the Garden of Eden before they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor is there any firm indication of how long they were in the Garden of Eden before they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before the fall. Uh, next question comes from Adonis, and he asks, when Jesus said in John 3 that we must be born of water, was the water a reference to water birth or to the word of God? Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, or to something else? Now, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 is that verse where Paul says that the work of Jesus towards his people is a work to sanctify and cleanse his people by the washing of water in the word. So Jesus says in John chapter three that we must be born of water. And uh, I regard that as um, natural birth. Um, let me go over to that passage here in John chapter three. Uh, excuse me while I just, well, that's not gonna help. That's a German Bible that I have up there open. Let me go over to this passage in John chapter 3 and read those particular verses to you. Um, in this, Jesus says this in verse 5, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is is spirit. Uh, 
Now, look, there's been a lot of different um, takes on this. Um, and Adonis, some of the understanding of it is exactly what you say. Some people think that it's talking about a washing of the word as indicated in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, and a washing or a work of the Holy Spirit. Some people think that the being born of water here speaks of being born of the waters of baptism and being born of the work of the Spirit. I, I don't know if we can conclusively say, but I'll give you what my best guess would be on this. I think that when Jesus spoke of is being born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I think he's talking about our natural birth, and that's what Jesus talks about, being born of water. Um, because look, without being any kind of medical expert, even I know that uh, a baby is carried within a sack we call water. Of course, it's not exactly, it's a watery substance that surrounds the child in the womb and that water is released before the child is born, you could say that a child is born of water, the, the waters of birth. I think what he's talking about there is the water of natural birth and then the work of the Holy Spirit in the spiritual birth. And the reason why I say that is because of what Jesus says in exactly the next verse, verse six, where Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. I think that the being born of water corresponds to being born of the flesh, our natural birth, and being born of the spirit corresponds to the spiritual work. I agree there's probably some legitimate room for people to have a different perspective and say, no, I think he's talking about the, the washing of the water of the word, as you kind of suggested there in your question, Adonis. Uh, waters of baptism, I'm a little less confident in that, but I could see how someone could make that case. But because of verse five, where Jesus then makes the parallel of the being born of the flesh and being born of the spirit, that's the take that I would take on that, Adonis. So uh, again, um, I think that's what Jesus, we must be born of a natural birth and then we must be born of a spiritual birth. Um, Next question comes from Patty. Uh, she asks this, is it okay to listen to worship songs that aren't performed by Christians or by Christians that have fallen away? An example is Cat Stevens' Morning Has Broken. It's a lovely hymn, but Cat is far away from Christianity. Is it okay to use this as a part of my worship? Patty, I'll just tell you, I think this is a matter of individual conscience before God. Um, there are some Christians who are able to just say, I'm going to judge a work by the work itself, um, by the words and the tune of the song itself. If that ministers to me, so to speak, if that helps me in, in worship or guides me to worship, then good. Um, but I think there's other Christians who would have a conscience say, no, Cat uh, Stevens went on to become a very decided and vocal Muslim I don't want to go down that path. Not that you would go down that path. I don't, I don't want to associate myself in any way with that. And so I won't make that part song any part of you know, my life or my worship. I really truly think, Patty, that this is a matter of individual conscience. That if the Holy Spirit were to convict a brother or sister that it was okay to do it, or if the Holy Spirit were to convict a brother or sister that it was not okay to do it, I wouldn't dispute either one. I would say do what you feel like the Holy Spirit has led you 
or has, uh, you know, guided you, commanded you to do. There is a lot in the Christian life that is left up to this area of liberty, of conscience. Um, sometimes we try to make rules for others when God deliberately leaves things in a gray area to where God can move in one life to do one thing and move in another life to do something else. I want everybody, not just Patty, but anybody else, to be aware of the phenomenon that God may require something of you that he doesn't require of another brother or sister in Christ. And you need to be okay with that. Now, don't go thinking that makes you any better or any more holy. This is just the Holy Spirit having a personal dealing with you. And so you should be at peace with that. Um, sometimes we just have a hard time with that idea and uh, want to put upon others things that the Holy Spirit's just dealing with us about. So I think we need to give room to the Spirit of God to work in ourselves and in others in a way that he would tailor to each individual life. Now, obviously, I'm not speaking about things that are clear in Scripture. For example, uh, when it comes to God's command about committing adultery. I can't say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit gave me permission to do something like that. No, 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 no. There are certain things that are clear in scriptures, but there are other things that the Holy Spirit just leaves to the individual liberty that he may grant or not grant in somebody's life. So if that helps you. All right, before going to the next question, I just want to say again, Shalom from Israel. Here I am. I'm in a hotel room, uh, in a hotel on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And we've just finished our first day of touring in Israel. Though I must say, my wife and I came a few days early on this tour, and we were able to do something really exciting at the old harbor of Caesarea, the ancient harbor. It's not a harbor anymore, but it used to be in ancient times. And we were able to actually scuba dive and see some of the remains of the old harbor on the sea floor there, uh, right off the shores of Caesarea. And boy, did we enjoy that time. Uh, but we met up with the tour group last night. And now this morning or through this day, we've had our first day of proper touring. Uh, I'll probably be here next Thursday to do the Q&A from Jerusalem. Uh, but I'm sure pleased if you've joined us today and join me that I can speak to you not from my home in California, but here I am in this hotel room trying not to be too loud in the way that I speak. And I hope you can hear me loud and clear uh, and have our Thursday afternoon, afternoon California time, whatever time it is for you. It's 10, 10 almost 1030 at night for me. And uh, if you can have this time together. Okay, our next question comes from uh, Susan. What are your thoughts on Christians who convert to Judaism? Well, Susan, um, okay, it's a little difficult to know exactly what you mean by this question because I could take that concept of converting to Judaism in a few different ways. Theoretically, somebody could say, Oh no, I believe that Jesus is my Messiah and I'm going to trust in Jesus as my Savior and have an 
and unreserved devotion to Jesus and trust in him and obedience to him and the finished work that he did for us on the cross and in his resurrection. Um, but I'm going to live in other ways as a Jewish person lives. Okay, that's theoretical. But I'm going to assume that that's not what you're indicating in your question. That you're indicating in your question somebody who would say, I am no longer a Christian. I no longer recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah and Lord over my life. I no longer consider him to be my master and me to be his disciple. I'm going to convert to Judaism. If a person does that, well, I, I think that's tragic. I think that's someone departing from the truth. They're departing from the truth of not only the Greek scriptures, which we commonly call the New Testament. They're departing from the truth of the Hebrew scriptures, which we commonly call the Old Testament. Make no doubt about it. The Hebrew scriptures point to Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, to be the Messiah. And if somebody denies the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's not just that they're mixed up about the New Testament, the Greek scriptures. They're mixed up about the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, because an accurate understanding of those points to Jesus Christ. And the person who forsakes Jesus for any other religion, whether it be Judaism, whether it be uh, Islam, they are not actually seeking after God. Jesus said that he was and is the perfect representation of God the Father. And that to reject Jesus is to reject God. This is a heavy thing. it's just not conceivable from a biblical perspective that somebody could say, oh no, I love God and I'm obedient to him. It's just Jesus that I push aside. It's just Jesus that I don't believe he is who he said he was. It's just Jesus that I have a problem with. Nope, because Jesus made it very plain that to reject him was also to reject the Father. So I would regard it as a tragedy for somebody to forsake their Christianity and to embrace or to go back to Judaism. I would think they would be moving further away from God and not closer to him. Friends, let's always remember there is one mediator between God and man. The Bible tells us in Paul's letter to Timothy, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, just one. There's no other mediator that will avail you before God. Okay, next question comes from Stacy among our TWR360 audience. Great, Stacy, glad you could write this one in. Uh, Stacy asks, how do you think God spoke to Adam, Moses, Cain, Jonah, David, the prophets, He gave David so many clear instructions for battle, for instance, and the specifics of the tabernacle and the temple. Could you elaborate on what this might have looked like? Stacy, we know that there are a few times in the Bible where God spoke with an audible voice. We know that God spoke with an audible voice at Mount Sinai 
when he delivered the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. We know that God spoke with an audible voice on the Mount of Transfiguration when he told the disciples, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. God spoke with an audible voice saying something very similar at the baptism of Jesus. God spoke with an audible voice to uh, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus. So it's possible for God to speak with an audible voice, but I suspect that even in Bible times, that was not the predominant way that God spoke. I, I believe that God spoke to people with, the voice of the inner man speaking to a person's thoughts, yet somehow making it clear that it is the Lord that is speaking. Um, Now, again, I don't think there's any way to prove this one way or another, but I just don't think that we should think that every time the Bible says that the Lord spoke in such a way, that it was an audible voice. And we know, for example, that when the writers of Scripture were writing, such as Paul in one of his prison epistles, uh, Paul's writing um, the letter of Ephesians, or Philippians, let's say, and he's writing it from his Roman imprisonment. So Paul's writing out Philippians. We shouldn't have what some people call a dictation theory, um, that God spoke audibly to Paul and just sort of said, okay, write what I tell you. And Paul heard an audible voice. No, God was moving in and through the thoughts that Paul had and perfectly inspiring him. So I would just answer it this way, um, Stacy. There are a few occasions in the Bible where God spoke with an audible voice, um, but that doesn't mean at all that every time God spoke, it was an audible voice. There were no doubt many times when God spoke simply through the thoughts that an individual has. Now, in a modern context, I have to say that I think it's very dangerous for modern believers to uh, long for or to demand that God would speak to them in an audible voice. I think actually that would even open a believer up to at least the possibility of spiritual deception. Because friends, we can say that in some regard, God is not the only one that has a voice. That there is at least some way in which demonic spirits can communicate with humanity. We we don't know all the details. All we know is that there is the potential and, and the ability in some way for them to communicate to our thoughts, to suggest things. And that, and, and that gives the idea that maybe an audible voice that someone would hear in a spiritual sense, it, it might not be God. And I just tell people all the time, yes, it's possible for God to speak to us, um, Audibly, although I would think that would be very, very rare, but even to speak to us, and I think I do believe that's definitely possible, but that's not how we should seek him. We should seek God in and through his word and say that um, as I seek him in and through his word, as I walk in the spirit, as I try to live a God-glorifying life, 
God may speak to me and guide me and direct me in other ways. But that we, we don't, we don't uh, open ourselves up to spiritual deception uh, in that way of saying, God, speak to me in such a way. Uh, again, there's one place that we know for sure God has spoken, and that's spoken to us in and through his word. All right, let me go on to the next question that comes from Jordan. Jordan asks this question. As someone who believes he has a call to ministry, do you believe I could commence ministry without a wife? Well, Jordan, I, I do think that's possible. Uh, first of all, I would say if you have a call to ministry and you believe that God wants you to, to head out on that and, and to pursue that, God bless you. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he said, it's good if someone desires this position of ministry, this position of overseer, whatever particular ministry it might be. That's a good thing. And so God bless you for that. And the Bible does not require that people in ministry be married. Now, I do know that in the qualifications for leaders uh, in 1 Timothy, and I believe in Titus as well, I know it's true in 1 Timothy, that the requirement is given that the bishop, the overseer, the pastor, the elder, whatever particular title you want to give on that just general position of church leadership, it says that he should be the husband of one wife. And I don't think at all that that is a requirement that the minister be married. And why do I say that? Well, because if it were a requirement that the minister be married, then Jesus was disqualified for ministry and Paul was disqualified for ministry because Paul was not married, at least for most of his ministry. So any rule that would eliminate Jesus the Messiah and the Apostle Paul from your list of ministerial candidates is surely a flawed rule. Note, when it says in the pastoral epistles that a servant of God should be the husband of one wife, instead of seeing that as a requirement for marriage, it just means that the husband who is married, the minister who is married, must be faithful to his wife. First of all, polygamy would be out of the question. But then also having a, a wandering heart or a wandering eye after other women. No, the, the, the translation of that idea in the original language is that the minister, the servant of God, should be a one-woman man. And I would say that one-woman man could either mean that one woman being his wife or the one woman being the one that God has for him if God has called that minister to be married, which... God may not necessarily have that calling on every minister's life. There is such a thing, although I think it's relatively rare um, among believers, uh, that God calls them to celibacy instead of to marriage. Uh, Paul makes that very clear in his letter to the Corinthians. So, um, Jordan, uh, I would not say in any general sense. Now, I don't know what the Holy Spirit would be guiding you in particular, um, but... Uh, in general, I would not say that being unmarried is a prohibition to entering into ministry. Hope that's helpful for you. Let me go on to the next question from Anuhui, who asks, does the Sabbath start Friday night and end Saturday night? 
uh, Anahui, the Jewish Sabbath does. Now, there are Christians who have taken the idea of the Sabbath and sort of transferred it to a Christian context. And for many of them, the Sabbath is Sunday, measured more just by the daylight hours beginning, you know, in the morning and ending in the evening or at nighttime. Um, But the Jewish Sabbath, the Jewish way of reckoning a day is that the day begins at sunset. That's the beginning of the day. And then the day continues on. And at sunset the following day, that's the end of one day in the beginning of another. So I would just simply say, yes, the Jewish Sabbath is like that. But there are people who have taken a Christian concept of the Sabbath. Uh, And again, this is just something that Christians are free to do or not to do. Uh, We have freedom in Christ, just as I mentioned that before. Uh, They are free to do that or not to do that. But again, there's no doubt about how the way that the Jewish people themselves reckon the Sabbath. Question from N, is there always a blessing after a trial, like Job? Well, N, I'm just going to be very straightforward and honest with you. Um, No, (laughs) there's not always a blessing after a trial. Um, Let me explain to you why I would say such a thing. First of all, because we don't always respond rightly under a trial. Sometimes we receive trials and difficulties in our life with a lot of unbelief, with a lot of complaining, with a lot of needless agony, and we don't gain the spiritual benefit in that particular trial that God would want us to gain. So the benefit, the blessing that God can work through trials at least somewhat depends on our response to God in the midst of the trial. But then I would also say this. Um, The blessing that comes after a trial may be a blessing that we uh, receive in eternity. No person will ever put God in their debt. God will reward all those who serve him, all those who honor him, all those who give up anything for his glory and his honor. You can be sure of that. But some of those blessings will be received in the world beyond, in the life we'll live after our life on this earth. It doesn't make those rewards or blessings any less real. It just makes them less immediate. And so I think that's something that we need to understand. Um, and uh, so there's, three, first of all, we, we may not respond to the trial correctly. Secondly, the blessing may come not in this life, but in the next. Uh, but thirdly, um, even the blessing that we receive may not immediately feel like a blessing. And I don't really know exactly how to describe this well. But all, all I can say is I just think that there's instances in our life where God is blessing us, but it doesn't necessarily feel like it at the moment. Only in retrospect, as we look at it, we go, you know what? God was really blessing me in the midst of that. And we can have some peace and rejoice in that. All right, once again, let me just say, I keep saying it because I suppose that through this broadcast, we pick up some new viewers. And uh, I just want to remind you, here I am in Israel, speaking to you from a hotel room, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. 
Uh, today, as part of an Israel tour that I'm a part of, we visited Caesarea and Mount Carmel and Megiddo and Nazareth Village and the Mount Precipice right outside of Nazareth. We've had a wonderful time doing it, though it is kind of a long day. We're tired. I'm going to be happy to go to bed after this is over, uh, but I'm pleased that you could join us this day. Um, if my schedule works out, everything that I suppose, I'll be doing uh, next Thursday's broadcast, the live Q&A, from a hotel room in Israel, in Jerusalem specifically. And you know what, man, I wish that I could do it in some beautiful outdoor scene, you know, with ruins behind me. But, but it's 1030 at night right now, and you couldn't see anything even if I was outside. So that's why I can just do it from within my hotel room. Just imagine there's some wonderful ruins of a Jewish synagogue behind me. Just put that in your mind and imagine right there I am in Israel. You know, it just occurs to me that as far as you can tell from how you're viewing this, I could be anywhere. There's nothing distinctive Israeli behind me. Um, I don't know, maybe if I showed you some Hebrew writing on the bottle of water that I have right here, maybe that would convince you, but I don't know, even that could be an elaborate. Just trust me, I'm in Israel and uh, I'm glad you could join me for this. Okay, uh, let me go into the next question from Mariel. No, excuse me, from Barry. I want to try to get these in order. Barry asks his question. Circumcision was the salvation by works issue for the Galatians. What's the big salvation by works issue that you see among Christians today? Barry, I would say it's just a general sense, not necessarily in any one single act. You see, what you have to understand about the way that circumcision was perceived uh, in first century Judaism, the Judaism that's being encountered by the Galatians, as Paul wrote to them in the New Testament, was circumcision didn't save in and of itself. It was being under the law of Moses that saved. And circumcision was the initiation into that. In other words, generally, although there were some rabbis who taught this, but generally the teaching was not, well, if you're circumcised, you can never be lost. Although, again, there were some rabbis who taught that. But again, it was that salvation could come to a person. Again, I don't want to say that every rabbi taught this, but some certainly did. Salvation comes by being obedient to the law. And uh, circumcision was the first step in that, at least, of course, for a man. So, in our modern context, I would just say that people try to be justified by the law, church people, if you will, they do that by rule keeping. They think that if they're just moral enough, keep a certain list of rules and go to church and maybe give some of their money to the church or to God's work, that that will ensure their salvation. And I think, of course, that that is a deception. Um, that they're looking to what they do to save themselves. Look, this is what we need to understand, that the core of Christianity is not what I do for God. The core of Christianity is what God has done for me or for you in Jesus Christ, especially in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. That's the core of Christianity. Now, again, I hope you understand I'm choosing my words carefully here. 
I'm not saying that what we do for God is irrelevant, that it has no place. Oh no, it definitely has a place. The Christian life is a life of discipleship. It's a life of action. What we do for God has its place, no doubt about it. But it's not the core of our Christian life. The core of our Christian life is what God has done for us. And Barry, I would just say that when that gets turned around and being a good Christian is really just a matter of not trusting in, relying on, and clinging to Jesus, but simply keeping a list of rules, then that answers to the trust that Jews had in circumcision. Thank you for that question, Barry. I'll go on to the next one that comes from Mariel, who asks, why is the sexual intercourse between Lot and his daughters considered a sin if it happened before the law of Moses and even Abraham and more people married their sisters? Well, Mariel, I I just think we would agree that there is a significant difference between uh, the few cases that we see in the Bible of people marrying their sister. Matter of fact, the only time in the Bible that I'm aware of somebody marrying their full sister, that is someone from the same father and mother, would be that first generation after uh, Adam, uh, Cain and his wife, Seth and his wife. They, They would have had to marry their sister. But after that, even in the days of Abraham, um, Sarah was his half-sister, not a full sister. Surely there's a difference between that and sexual relations between a parent and their offspring. Now, again, the daughters of Lot were not children, so I wouldn't say a parent and child, but it's certainly a parent and offspring. So surely there's a difference between that. And again, um, the... Uh, wrongness of what happened with Lot and his daughters is indicated by the fact that they had to get Lot drunk in order to consummate the act. Uh, They had to remove him from his normal faculties of wisdom and judgment before they could consummate the act. That in and of itself shows that it was something that they themselves knew was wrong, even though there was not a specific commandment against it. I think that we just simply recognize that when the law of Moses later on and came and strictly forbade such relations, uh, for example, as is indicated in Leviticus, when the law of Moses did that, it was not creating such laws It was codifying such laws which were already written into the heart and conscience of mankind. Um, What Lot and his daughters did, all the parties involved knew were wrong. And we know that from the circumstances around the occasion. Later on, when that is specifically condemned, for example, in the book of Leviticus, It wasn't the creation of a law that didn't exist before. It was the codifying of a law that was written in the heart and the mind of mankind. And God simply just put it in writing, so to speak. Hope that's helpful for you, Mara. That's how I would see uh, that issue. 
Powell asks this question. What did Paul mean in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, when he said that our life is hidden with Christ in God? Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says just pretty much exactly that. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, well, I just simply think, Powell, that this is the idea here. First of all, if you notice, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, for you died. You say, well, wait a minute. When did I die? I seem to be pretty much alive right here, right now. When did I die? Well, I'll tell you when I died. I died when Jesus died on the cross because I am so identified with him that when he died, I died. When he rose from the dead, I rose from the dead. And that's the status of everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, who put their trusts in, rely on, and, and clings to Jesus, especially in what he did at the cross and in the empty tomb. So our life is so identified with Jesus that we died with him. Paul explores that theme also in Romans chapter 6. And now our life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, there is a sense in which Jesus Christ is hidden from the world right now. He's ascended to heaven, and the world can't see them with the physical eye. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And so as Christ is hidden, there's a sense in which our life with God is hidden, and the world cannot see our glory, so to speak. Matter of fact, sometimes we can't even see our glory. Now, here's the idea. The Christian has a glory in their identification with Christ that the world can't see. Look, when you think about all the things that the scriptures say about who we are in Jesus, that we are adopted sons and daughters, we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house, we are kings and priests with him, we are a royal priesthood, we want to consider all of this together, look, When the world looks at me, they don't necessarily, they don't look and say, hey, there's walking a king and a priest. There's walking somebody who belongs to a royal priesthood. They just say, well, there's a guy. That glory that we have is hidden. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Those things are real, but they're not apparent to the world. Now, Jesus is real on this earth, but he's not present by observation, by the physical eye. And really, that's how I would explore that, Pao. Just to say that it's just an aspect of our identification with Jesus Christ in all of its aspects. Let me go on to the next question from Civi Tips, whatever. I hope I'm saying that right, whatever your screen name is. Uh, what are your thoughts on the role of female deacons versus a male deacon's wife? 1 Timothy 3. Okay, CBI. What, what the question is being brought up about is Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3 and talks about the qualifications for elders. And by the way, the qualifications of elders are there in that section are with the assumption in how it's presented that the elder's a man, not a woman. Then he talks about deacons, and then he talks about either the wives of deacons or women deacons, 
it's not exactly clear in the text. And so there's been some debate. Is Paul talking about the institution of women deacons? Or is Paul talking about qualifications for the wives of deacons? I'll just give you my opinion while acknowledging that there's some legitimate debate about this. I believe that Paul is talking about women deacons, and I'll tell you why. Because, first of all, I think that the New Testament does not restrict the service of women in the church, but in local congregations, it does restrict the leadership or the authority of women in the church. Look, I, I am just of the opinion, this is my my opinion of what the scriptures teach after, listen, careful study and I think delving into the best arguments that would try to say to the contrary, that God has appointed the leadership of qualified men, not just any man, but qualified men in congregations. And specifically, he said that he doesn't want women to take those congregational positions of spiritual leadership. Well, I don't regard the position, the function of a deacon to be necessarily one of spiritual leadership. A deacon implies spiritual service. That's what a deacon is all about. Now, of course, anybody who's serving in ministry is to be a servant, but even more specifically, deacons are described as servants. And we also have the example of at least a few people in the New Testament, such as Phoebe, who are specifically spoken of as being deacons. So I I don't have a problem with the concept of women deacons, and I don't think that that contradicts the uh, biblical pattern, the biblical instruction. I regard as a biblical imperative that God has ordained the leadership of qualified men in his local congregations. If I could just add one more thing, Uh, I am of the opinion, and this again, it's not just my opinion. I I really believe that it's my opinion coming forth from my study of the scriptures and my understanding of, of church history and how God has worked things through history. That God's command for the leadership of qualified men in congregations and God's command for the leadership of the husband in the home, uh, That doesn't extend to every other area of life. I don't think that God has commanded male leadership or headship, whatever term you want to apply there, in politics, in economics, in business, in education. Look, I I just don't see that the Bible has commanded that. And, And I want to be careful to be a person that says, yes, where the Bible does say something, we can say it, but where the Bible is silent, we don't want to make a commandment of God out of a tradition of man. So again, I don't have a problem with the concept and the carrying out of the idea of female deacons, women deacons. Benjamin asks this question. Why did Paul instruct us not to worry about whether food was sacrificed to idols? When two constraints placed on first century believers were to abstain from fornication and to forego meat sacrificed this way. Okay, Benjamin, what you're talking about here is you're contrasting what Paul said to believers in 1 Corinthians about eating meat sacrificed to idols with what was written to believers in Acts chapter 15 
about how they should act in light of being Gentiles in a pagan world. I just want to go to that um, Acts 15 passage and point something out here. Here at the Jerusalem Council, uh, they make a decree. And I just want to quote one particular line in this decree. They say this, um, again, um, hold on, I'm looking for the particular verse. Uh, to lay no greater burden on these, excuse me. Okay, the rationale for the commandment found in verse 28 and verse 29 that they would keep them things from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and sexual immorality. The rationale for those things was found in verse 21. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, of the things that they list that Christians were not to do in light of the Jerusalem Council, Gentile Christians, they were not to do those things so as to not offend uh, either Jewish brothers or sisters or the Jewish community as a whole Uh, potential converts, not to give needless offense. Now, of course, of the things that they list there, especially sexual immorality, that transcends that. But some of the things that they list there in verse 29, things offered to idol, had a special context to not offend uh, the Jewish population around them. I think the difference is, is that in Corinth, you have uh, at least segments of the Christian community there that had relatively little interaction with the Jewish community around them. And for them, Paul said, it's not the same thing. You don't have to avoid eating meat sacrificed to idols so as to not offend your Jewish neighbor. Again, at least some of these communities of Christians in Corinth just didn't have that issue. And so for them, the concern was different. That's how I would explain the difference between those two things. Um, It's specifically explained in Acts chapter 15 that the rationale for those requirements was because so it's not offend, needlessly offend the Jewish uh, presence around them. And so just simply where there wasn't such a Jewish presence, they didn't have to be concerned with everything on that list in the same way. That's the best way I would explain. I hope that is clear enough for you, Benjamin. A couple more questions here. One from Horatio, who asks, I've heard that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the phrase apt to teach means teachable. How true is this? Well, let me go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I think you're talking about there in the qualifications. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I think you said verse 24. Um, And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach or apt to teach, patient. You know, it's very interesting because uh, things, especially according to sometimes different manuscript traditions, things can be translated differently. And uh, I think that it would probably, it, it doesn't disturb the context to take it either way. It just doesn't. 
Uh, matter of fact, you could say that in context, teachable might make more sense, but apt to teach certainly can't be excluded from that thought or able to teach. Um, and so, Horatio, that's really a matter that I would just want to try to get out the manuscripts, look at the manuscript evidence for either kind of reading, see which one has more evidence behind it, and take it from that. Either one of those can express a biblical idea, and so I wouldn't exclude either one of those as being terribly out of line with the context. Okay, last question for the day comes from Paige. And Paige asks this question. How should a wife ever to lead her home if her husband isn't a strong believer or strong in his walk? Well, Paige, uh, that's a good question. You know, my wife and I were just talking about this the other day. And we recognized that a a wife is a leader in the home. There's no doubt about it. A, A wife does have a leadership role. Now, we would say that it's leadership under the headship of her husband, but she has a leadership role. She certainly leads the children. She certainly leads in other aspects of the practical outworking of daily life in the home. So the point isn't to say that a wife has no application or outworking of leadership. No, that's not it at all. It's to just simply say what the Bible says is that the husband has a leadership that's described as headship. In other words, sort of being the the general manager or head over the home. Well, how should a wife lead her home if her husband isn't a strong believer? Well, I, I would say that the wife would probably say that she needs to take a little more spiritual leadership in regard to the children if the husband isn't a strong believer. And look to really pour into the children if a husband isn't a believer or not a strong one. Um... But she should look for ways to give her op- husband the opportunity to step up to leadership. Now, look, I, I know this is difficult, and each individual marriage relationship has its own dynamics. And so I'm always a little bit hesitant to give just kind of a one-size-fits-all. But in general, um, a wife needs to be sensitive to giving opportunity for her husband to lead. If she's so busy leading, so to speak, then her husband may may never see a need, or at least in his mind, it wouldn't necessarily be true, but at least in his thinking, even an opportunity to step forward and lead. That's not good. And so, uh, yes, there may be appropriate times for the wife to step in and take more leadership, but at the same time, it should never be done in a way that would seek to exclude or push out the leadership or the budding the developing leadership of the home. And she should, as much as possible, seek to do it without trying to lay any kind of guilt trip upon the husband. Again, these are difficult things, and every marriage relationship has its own dynamics. So as I said before, I'm a little bit hesitant giving sort of a one-size-fit-all, but these are some of the principles that we see at work. Folks, that's it. We're past our hour time. It's past 11 o'clock at night. I'm tired. I'm going to head off to bed pretty soon. And I just want to thank you for joining me for this live question and answer time from Israel. I'm sorry that we weren't able to get to all your questions, but uh, somebody on our team is going to copy down the entire chat thread and save it. And we can go back uh, to some of these questions and maybe get to them in the future. 
because even if we weren't able to get to your particular question, we're so happy that you viewed, so happy that you asked, and we're participating in asking the questions. Thank you for joining us today. God willing, and if we live, I will join you next Thursday from Jerusalem, and we'll be for another Q&A here from the Holy Land. God bless you, and thank you for joining us. It's been a great time. Thank you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.